would like the Sheikh to come and commence with the lecture, inshallah. I thank you all for your patience again, and please listen attentively with an open ear, an open mind, and an open heart. Thank you. Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last messenger of Allah. The topic this evening, no God, no good. Know what is good. It deals with the essential principle governing Islam and its teachings. That every Muslim is instructed to know the religion. There's a well known statement of Prophet Muhammad. May God's peace and blessings be upon him. Talabul ilmi farida ala kulli Muslim. Seeking knowledge is compulsory for every Muslim. This statement is a direct encouragement for all Muslims to know the teachings of Islam. Meaning that they do not just inherit it from parents. Uh, without reflection, without understanding that it's just a custom and a tradition which is handed down and people follow it unquestioningly. Islam encourages questions to get that understanding. We have no questions you can't ask. You may not get an answer, but you're still free to ask. And we believe all of the essential questions that need to be answered are in fact answered within the folds of the teachings of Islam. Knowledge from the Muslim perspective is of course prioritized. There's some knowledge which is most important, some knowledge which is less important. And of course when we embark on the quest for knowledge, we should prioritize that which is of most importance. That's common sense. And the importance of any given area of knowledge will be determined by the importance of its content. What is that knowledge about? And from the Islamic perspective, the most important thing that we need to have knowledge about is the Creator Himself. That is the starting point of knowledge. So Muslims are encouraged to understand, to know about God, to know Allah, to know who He is, to know His attributes, to know the elements which are related to 
His creation of this world, His control of all that takes place in the world, to know His mercy and to know His displeasure and to know the purpose of our creation. Because for us to think of God as the Creator, to have created us without informing us of what we need to do in this life, that would seem for us quite illogical. So it's not enough for us just to say, but I believe there is a God. No. Once we say, I believe there is a God, and it is God who has the attributes of ultimate wisdom, knowledge, mercy, power, etc., etc., then common sense tells us from that that God had to tell us why we are here, what this life is about. Because any normal circumstance in which we set up a company, hire people to come and work in that company, but we don't inform the people what they're supposed to do in the company, the consequence of such a move would be disastrous. Nobody has to tell us this, no, you need to tell the workers, you need to tell them what are they supposed to be doing here. Otherwise, what are they going to do? They'll come to the business or the institution, find the closest canteen and go and drink tea. Until somebody comes along and tells them, oh, listen, here, uh, you're supposed to be doing this, 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 and that. So, if on such a simple level, it's obvious that people need to know what they were hired for, what they were sent to a particular location for, then surely God who created this world is not going to put us in this world and not tell us what we're supposed to do here. Now, knowledge of what we're supposed to do here has to have been conveyed to us. How is it conveyed? As a Muslim, we believe it's conveyed by revelation that God, in fact, did communicate His will to human beings. We believe that it began with Adam and Eve and continued throughout human existence until the final message to humankind was given back in the 6th, 7th century to Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessing be upon him, following the message which was given to Prophet Jesus, may God's peace and blessings be upon him. So, knowledge, knowledge of Allah provides for us knowledge of how we should function in this life. And everybody in this life wants good. 
We all desire what is good. We want to avoid what is evil. That is natural. It's our nature to want to do and to gain what is good and to avoid what is evil. Now the issue is, how do we know what is in fact good and what is in fact evil? Some people say, we can figure that out ourselves. We have democracy, secular democracy, which will tell us what is good and what is evil. We do not need to resort to God. Secular democracy based on the idea that all humans are equal. Good idea. And along with it, rational empiricism, we as individuals have the capability of reasoning, learning from our history, from what came before, etc., figuring out what is in fact good for us. And then discussion and consent that we come together and everything is open to discussion. There are no absolute truths. And from the course of our discussion, we arrive at what the majority considers, and that becomes good. What the majority considers to be good, then becomes the good. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, if good is simply what the majority decides is good, it means then that good has no solid foundation. It will change from society to society, from time to time, place to place, people to people. So what was considered bad yesterday can be considered good today. And what was considered good yesterday can be considered bad today. So there is no fixed guidelines on good, that good, we can find the objective good, that ultimate good which will last throughout human history. That is why <clears throat> when we look at the American Constitution, for example, 18th century, the most enlightened minds of that time put together a document. And in that document, and it's still there, you can see it in Washington. In that document, it states there that a black man is three-fifths, or to be considered three-fifths of a white man. These were the enlightened minds of that time. They enshrined that in the Constitution. Of course, it's been amended. It's no longer enacted, but it was the natural consequence, not that the people, the founders were bad people, evil people, they were good people, but they were influenced by 
the circumstances in that time, in that place. Most of them owned slaves. Slaves were basically black people. And it was inconceivable that the slaves would be equal to themselves. Otherwise, why are they slaves? Why is it the other way around? So, it made sense that their value would not be the same as that of a white man. That was the good at that time. It was a good for white people. It wasn't good for black people. So it was subjective. Relative to those individuals, it was the good. Later on, of course, looking back at it, in our times after Selma and, you know, uh, the end, or supposed end of racial discrimination in the U.S. country, in the West, then that was looked at as something evil. So, how then do we arrive at something which is objective? From Muslim perspective, that's from knowing God. God who has created human beings knows their inner workings from the first human being to the last who exists in the world. He knows how human beings think, their psychology, their biology, their social relations, etc. He then laid laws which took into account the objective reality of human beings. So when he defined certain acts, statements, etc. as good, that good was not a good for the people of that time. It was a good it was good for all people, in all times, and in all places. So, that is why the Muslim world, in spite of its divisions and issues that it's faced with, coming out of colonialism in olden times, etc., It stands and holds its ground on issues today which other societies have crumbled and accepted while along. There are a variety of different issues, among them the death penalty, for example. Death penalty, which has been cancelled in a number of different states of the US, not all. In the UK, so another country, etc. The Muslim world, the Muslim scholarship does not accept that. Somebody kills somebody else, then that person is to be executed. A life for a life. However, there is 
an element of favor that can absolve that person or excuse that person from execution, that is given to the family of the ones who suffered the loss. Not given to a jury of individuals who are completely unrelated to decide amongst themselves should that person get the death penalty or should they not or no, that is left to the family. They are the ones who suffered the loss. So if they decide to be merciful and to let that person go, perhaps also with the payment of fine for taking a life, some people call it blood money, then that person can be excluded, but it is left in the hands of the family of the murdered individual. So that principle is in place. So the law is, remains unchanged, but it has an element of flexibility where uh, families are involved. So if a brother or a father or a son was killed, and the family know that that brother, father, or son was in fact not a very good person. They were evil people. They were hurting those around them. They have the option of saying, don't kill that person, don't kill them. They don't understand. Why? But it's left to them to understand if they wish to let him go or to insist that that person's life be taken. So that is the uh, basic position for Muslims knowing God is the source of knowing what is ultimately good. Not relative good but ultimate good. And the ultimate element of good, goodness, is in fact morality, about which we touched in previous lectures. Because, and we know that that is the case, because of the fact that the Prophet, may God's peace and blessings upon him, had himself said, I was only sent to perfect for you the highest of moral characters. So the essential message of Islam is a moral message. It's not a scientific message, technological message, political message. It is essentially a moral message. Morality with regards to God, how one is morally good in relationship to God by worshipping Him alone. How one is morally bad by worshipping others besides Him or along with Him or denying His existence 
that is considered morally evil. How human beings relate with other human beings? What is morally good? Honesty, justice, etc., etc. We all know. And what is morally evil? Theft, murder, etc. Rape. All of these morally evil. And how human beings relate to the world in which they were created? The environment. It's morally good to look after the environment. This is something which God has granted us. It is a gift from God. This world in which we live. And it's morally good to look after it. Take care of it. Protect it from destruction. It is for our benefit. And it's morally evil to pollute it. To destroy it. All of the various issues which are now becoming big issues in the world concerning the environment. Islam, of course, supports that. And it did from the very beginning in its final message. So what this means, practically speaking, is that when we look at the fundamental teachings of Islam, what we need to focus on is the moral message that it carries. What we tend to do, because it's much easier, and it may be common, most common, is to focus on the ritual. The rituals of the religion. We know them well, or to varying degrees, and we do them without any reflection, etc. So it just becomes a habit. I do this because my parents did it. My family does it. My society does it. So I do it. That's enough for me. But is that what God wants? No. Because those rituals and rites were not an end. They were not a goal which we, as Muslims, were supposed to seek. They were only a means. A means to a goal. So, knowing God, knowing the messengers of God who came, who gave the understanding of how a person should live a godly life, a life which is pleasing to God, not a life of being God, because we are human beings, we cannot be God, but a, a, a life which is pleasing to God, they demonstrated, they showed how to live that life. And the essential guidance that is there is the moral message in all of its principles. So if we go back and look at what are known as the five pillars of Islam, right? these are found, funded, you know, foundational principles. The Prophet, may God's peace and blessing be upon him, 1,400 years ago, he stated that Islam is built on five pillars. 
And he explained what those five pillars were. So it's not something that people came up with after he died. Centuries later, down the line, people have different opinions. That's one thing that you will find everywhere in the Muslim world, no matter where you go. And Muslims are virtually everywhere in the world. Everybody knows that Islam is built on five pillars. Five pillars of practice, which constitutes the body of Islam, the social, uh, regular uh, contact, which is supposed to be bringing us closer to God, supposed to give us greater consciousness or awareness of God. And each and every pillar has behind it moral principles for which those pillars were prescribed. But for most of us, as I said, when we learn, nobody mentions this. They didn't talk about the moral principles. Maybe in passing, somehow, some way, it is mentioned, but it's not, it wasn't taught along with it. We just were taught the five pillars. That's it. And if somebody asks you today, what is the moral principle behind this pillar or that pillar? Oh, you have to scratch your head. I haven't really thought about it. This is the reality. It means then that we really hadn't understood what Islam is. We practice the ritual as everybody else. But if the ultimate goal of human beings is to attain paradise, then those rituals in and of themselves will not take us there. Without the soul, the heart of those rituals, which are the moral principles which we are supposed to absorb, translate into a good life, a godly life, a life which is pleasing to God. If that is missing, then the rituals are just blind rituals, not ultimately taking us anywhere. So if we go to the first of the pillars of Islam, <coughs> the Shahadatan, the two declarations of faith. When a person wants to become a Muslim, under normal circumstances, they are required to declare their faith publicly, with witnesses. The principle behind that is openness. That we be open. We don't have two faces. One face when we deal with certain people, another face when we deal with other people. What is in your heart? Expressed. Secretiveness. The opposite is dislike. And we can find it in the Quran where Allah said, La khayra fi min The secret meetings that people hold, for the most part, they're evil. The Masons. 
other prosecutions. All these societies that are secret societies, you can't get in, you have to you know, know somebody, you have to go through this, that, and the other before you can get into it. It's hidden, hidden from the society. Those societies, they benefit themselves, the members are benefited. If you have a court case and you do a hand signal, the judge, but you saw he's got the ring on his finger, you give the hand signal and he knows you're one, he's going to move the case in your favor. So it's good for you. There's that subjective good. But in the society, it's evil. It cheats people of their rights. So these secret meetings, well, of course in the Quran, Allah went on to say, except if you are gathering secretly to give charity in a way that others don't know. This is the one aspect of it. You meet secretly to give charity without people knowing who gave that charity. Because that's the higher level of giving charity. One level is you give, people know. The other level is you give, nobody knows. Only God. Or you and your small skeleton. There's no evil in that. That is something good for both the person who receives it as well as the one who gives it. Because if we are able to give charitably without seeking praise, seeking gratitude from others, status, etc., then our giving is a greater giving. So, the basic principle in the Declaration of Faith, the two declarations of faith, encourages this moral principle of openness, transparency. Of course, there are always exceptions. And there is an exception if you fear for your life. Different parts of the world, if somebody says, I want to become a Muslim, maybe their family will kill them. It happens. We know the ruler of Ethiopia, Muslim history, who converted to Islam, hid it from his people to prevent harm which may come to his family and etc. He hid it. He was the only one. He couldn't withstand his people. So he had that option. The first part of that declaration of faith, which is La ilaha illallah, declaring that there is no God worthy of worship but God, the one true God, Allah. That, of course, encourages the development of God consciousness. And that is going to be found throughout all of the pillars. But in Arabic is known as taqwa, being conscious of God. And of course, to be able to say that statement, to make that statement, one has to have knowledge. So if we don't know who God is, and we say that statement, it's meaningless. The Prophet, in order to emphasize its significance, he said, Whoever states that there is no God worthy of worship, but the one true God, known in Arabic as Allah, in Amharic as Allah, in other languages as God with a capital G or whatever, 
because we don't claim that the term used by Adam, Abraham, and all the prophets for God was Allah. Some Muslims get off into that, but that's not correct. Whatever language the people used that described or identified the one true God with the attributes that we know. In Korea, it was anonym. We don't tell the Koreans, well, listen now, that's the wrong name for God. No, anonym, when you see what the meaning of anonym is, it's the same as Allah. Understood by Muslims today. So, the point is that when one commits oneself to accept God in their lives as the one true God, the only one worthy of worship, he or she who makes a commitment must know who God is. If you don't know God's attributes, etc., then you may commit yourself to the worship of a human being who said he is God. Or one who didn't say he was God, but people said he was God. So you have all of that out there. Or somebody will tell you it's a stone, or, or a cow, or, or anything. People can tell you all kinds of things. And there are a lot of people who worship God in a form, in a way, which is not God. It is a result of their own culture, etc., which has been handed down to them. The second aspect of the declaration of faith is Muhammad Rasulullah, declaring that Muhammad was the last messenger of Allah. The first part was most important because, as the Prophet said, may God's peace and blessing upon him, whoever says there is no God worthy of worship, but the one true unique God, Allah, will enter paradise. That is a guarantee. Meaning, saying it with understanding. As we said, it's with understanding. Along with that, with each era of the prophets, the additional statement of faith included Musa Rasulullah. Moses was the messenger of Allah in his time. Abraham, Jesus, Muhammad, all of these prophets and many others who we don't know about. Because the understanding of prophethood is not limited to the few 25 prophets that are mentioned in the Quran or more mentioned in the Bible. But as the Prophet said, there were only more than 124,000 prophets were sent. So they were sent to all nations and tribes around the world. So in their time when the Prophet was there, enlightening the people to the one true God who alone deserves to be worshipped they were also required to believe in that prophet who brought the message. And that develops in the individual the quality of obedience, of being obedient to those who know more, who have more love or more uh, position in society 
than us, to be obedient to them as a form of respect, to ensure proper guidance, and of course, when we're going beyond that of the prophets in terms of obedience, we have conditions to that obedience. As the prophet himself had explained, obedience to the creatures of God is not acceptable if it involves disobedience to the Creator. So we have a condition. So obedience is there and it should be. Children should obey their parents. Families should obey their community. Communities should obey the leaders of their countries, etc., their regions. But it's not blind obedience, meaning anything they say, we do. So, but that obedient quality is important. You know yourself that if you are obedient to your parents, they love you. If you are disobedient, then you are damaging that love. Not to say they don't love you anymore, but you are hurting it, you are damaging it. The second pillar of Islam, Salah, five daily prayers. Some people ask, why five? Why five times a day? Why not just once a day? The point of the five times daily prayer is to organize our day around the worship of God, the consciousness. So when we get up in the morning, rather than simply getting up because you got to go to work, so that's why you get up, you prepare yourself, put some food in the system so you can function, and then midday you break for lunch, break time so that you don't wear yourself out, you need to put some more food in the, in the oven, keep the program going, and so on. All your, your day is around what? Your stomach. You know, that's your framework. Put food in the system. For a purpose. You earn the money, etc. Or it could be for other purposes. But the most important purpose is that one be conscious of God. So, five times. You get up in the morning, first and foremost, we worship God. We make that connection, have that connection with God. We break at midday, again, renew that connection with God. It doesn't mean that we don't eat and do the other things that we normally do to keep functioning. We do those things, but priority is given to remembering God, bringing God in our lives as much as possible. So five times a day. That was described by the prophet who received that as revelation from God. That is Muslim belief. So it forms the framework of our lives. Prayer. 
encouraging, establishing regular contact with God. Now, that is supposed to develop this concept of God consciousness. But it also should be translated into how we communicate, how we deal with people socially around us. So Allah said in the Quran, Inna salah Prayer, regular prayer, established prayer, prevents evil speech and evil deeds. So if we are praying five times a day and we still speaking evil, doing evil, then we have to question what kind of prayer are you making? It's not the prayer which was prescribed. It was just the ritual. The reflection, the understanding, the contemplation, you see. So it doesn't have an impact in our day-to-day -day lives. So, uh, some people say, well, you know, this five times daily prayer is very mechanical. It's like a robot. You know, every morning you get up, lunchtime, evening, sunset, before you go to bed, boom. Just a steady, you know, like a robot. Isn't it better to worship God when you feel that thing in your heart? So when you worship God with this thing in your heart, you know, this love, this, well, that's real prayer. It sounds nice. But what happens? You don't feel that thing in your heart today. So you don't pray. You don't feel it this week, this month, six months, years go by, you never feel it, so you never pray. When do you pray now? When calamity strikes, that is the time when something major happens in your life, you know, you're just distraught, you're whatever, what else can you do? Oh God, oh God. I call that the atheist's prayer. Why? Because for sure, if you end up on the airplane, Boeing 747 or whatever is the latest, 800 or whatever, and you're sitting next to an atheist, and you look out the window and one of the engines falls off, right? the atheist is a little worried. Of course, you're worried too. And if the plane starts to turn, head into that dive that you know there's no coming back, that atheist will not sit there and say, tough luck. <laughs> no. You will see him raise his hands, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Even more than you. He'll be praying harder than you. Because in that time of desperation, everybody prays. That's how it is. <laughs> so if our prayer as Muslims is like that, then we're like them. And if we leave contact with God only to that time of desperation, then that is not real prayer. You have nothing else. 
The atheist is calling on God, and all his life he said there was no God. But at that time he's calling on God. Why? Maybe. Maybe there is a God. And some of us, we treat prayer in the same way. Maybe. Precautionary. So the person becomes what they call a Friday Muslim. You only see him in the mosque on Friday. Or a Ramadan Muslim. Ramadan, you see him 24-7. And you ask, but why? You know, you don't really believe you have what said, just in case. That's the precautionary Muslim. Just in case. But that's not prayer in Islam. Prayer in Islam is that commitment, that obedience to the command of God, which we organize our daily life with, and from which, with proper contemplation, reflection, we will come closer to God. We will become better The same can be said of zakat, that is the obligatory charity, that's what we call it, but it's kind of a contradiction in terms. Because charity means you do it yourself, not going to be obligatory. Well, in the Islamic system, this amount of money is to be given to the needy, not to the church, or the mosque, or the synagogue, or the temple. Is given to the needy to help them. We are forced to give some of the wealth, which was from God anyway, give some of that wealth to the needy elements of the society. And when we do that, if we do it sincerely, it makes us better people. Because we respect generosity. All societies they admire those who are generous. This is a quality. This is one of the moral principles of generosity. Reaching out and helping others. Sharing with others. Which Islam calls us to. And fasting, of course, somebody says, why fast? You know, you're just torturing yourself. Well, yeah, if you're doing the ritual, you get hungry, or actually, the way we do the ritual, you don't get hungry. <coughs> because what we do, we have sahur, that early morning meal before dawn, and we have uh, iftar, we break the fast of the sun, setting of the sun. But what we do is that for that morning meal, we prepare a three course <laughs> Biryani Satay Whatever And we tank up We fill up right to max Until we can't eat anymore Then we go too fast We go back to sleep And we wake up later Food is still digesting In our stomachs We go through the day Food is still digesting Till just before sunset, digestion ends. 
and it's starting to eat again. We're waiting for that Adhan sending of the sun so we can eat. And again, what do we do? As they say, dig out, you know, get the big meal and pack it all in again. So then, what happened to the fast? Was that the fast which was prescribed? No. That's not the fast. Ah, yeah, according to the ritual, you didn't eat after dawn until sunset. You fulfilled the letter of the law, the ritual. But the spirit lost. This Ramadan, try the way of the Prophet. Suhoor, some brown bread, olives, <laughs> olive oil, that's it. And not how many loaves of olive, you know, brown bread and how many bottles of olives. You know, we talk about a loaf of brown bread, a few olives, six, eight, and go into the fast that way. You'll experience a whole different fast. One you've never experienced before. And it will be the real fast. A fast now where by the time after you went back to sleep after Fajr, you woke back up again, you feel hungry. Not just before sunset, you already felt hungry. So you feel hunger pangs throughout the day. Those hunger pangs remind you of those people who are not fasting by choice. They're fasting because there's no food. You know, to be able to empathize, sympathize with others who are starving, we see these pictures about different places in the world, we say, oh, poor things, you know, let's give them something. But it's not the same as when you feel that hunger. If you have never really felt hunger, you really don't know what's happening to them. Anything about it, beyond the image that you see. So that's the purpose. That we're supposed to feel that hunger, and it should motivate us to want to share, to help others who are needy. And the ultimate goal, of course, again, is that of God consciousness. That when we hear of cases, we see cases, etc., we remember God and go ahead and do it. Remember that fast. It has real meaning in our lives. And the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. That pilgrimage which brings Muslims from all over the world converging on Mecca, doing rites of worship, rituals, connected to Prophet Abraham's sacrifice, or willingness to sacrifice his son, his wife, Hagar, had her, the trials that she faced in being left alone in Arabia with her child. That gathering brings together Muslims 
from all over the world. Which reminds us of the universality of Islam. That as there is one God, and He created one human race, of course we got caught up in different races, there are Caucasian, and Negroid, and Mongoloid, and all these other kind of names that were given to us, but in fact this is all nonsense. There are, there are no other nations, there are no other races. There's only one race, the human race. That's all there is. Because, and God left certain signs in human life to point to it for us in different eras and times. In our time, he left the sign with blood. In the blood. Actually, some biologists and others, they say, you know, uh, people who share the same type of earwax are actually closer than those who don't. Goes across the line. <laughs> earwax. Anyway, the blood thing is much clearer. If somebody comes from Norway, the whitest of white, blondest of blonde, bluest eyes that the world knows. O negative, blood. The family members can't help them. Their blood cannot save them. But somebody who comes from southern India, Tamil Nadu, blackest of black, darkest eyes, black hair, has a neg O negative, his blood can save Is that not a sign that we are one race? Of course. We are one. All these variations, etc., these are, you know, when we talk, we see cows. They come big, small, spotted, all kinds. We never say, this is a so and so. We do say Guernsey cow. It comes from that area. Right? But we don't say it's another race of cows. No, no. It's all cows. Cats, same thing. You have furry cats, big cats, small cats, all kinds of cats. You call cats. Human beings, one and the same. The Hajj reminds people that there is this one creation. There is one God, one human race. And for that human race, he sent one way of life, one religion. That's it. He didn't send a variety of different religions to confuse people. These are confused with that and what and how and why. And that confusion came from us. We made up the different religions. The one religion which he gave Adam, as Muslims we believe that religion was Islam. Because Islam is not unique to Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessing be upon It was the same message given to all prophets of God. Submission of the human will to God. That is the essential message. Human beings should submit and worship God alone. Submit to and worship God alone. <coughs> One message. So, 
Hajj reminds us and requires of us patience and tolerance. And if we're not patient in Hajj, you cannot make a Hajj. You will go through the ritual, but you will not follow the principles. Allah tells us very clearly in the Quran about essential elements of Hajj. La rafatha, wala fusuqa, wala jidala fil Hajj. That there is no uh, bad words, bad actions, corruption in Hajj. Should not be. So it means that when all these people are jammed together, millions in one place, doing the same right, somebody is going to step on your foot. How do you respond to it? You curse them. Somebody is going to bounce into you. How do you respond to it? You hit them back. And you see some people there are not you. Like there's declared war on all the people there. It's unfortunate. They have not understood the Hajj. So they miss out on the purifying quality of Hajj. Which brings and should bring out in us patience. To be patient. A very, very important quality in life. Without patience, suicide. That's the end result. If you don't have patience, you can't handle the things that are happening around with you. In the end, what else is left for you? Kill yourself. That's it. So, that message is there, and the one of tolerance is there, but <coughs> God prescribed Hajj knowing that in time, the vast majority of Muslims, there will come a time when the vast majority of Muslims will not be able to make Hajj. We are in that time. Most people will not make Hajj in their lifetime. So then what? Only those people who had the means, they get the reward. And the other people who don't have the means, they don't get the reward. Is that really fair? Because who decided whether they had the means or not? Allah is the one who gave those means. So, the Prophet had said, Deeds are ultimately judged by their intention. So intention became the most important element of the righteous deed. So if you had the intention to make Hajj, and God did not provide the means for you to make Hajj, He will reward you for your intention. And maybe your reward would be many times more than many who actually go there and do all the rights and come back. But they went there for adding stripes to their, you know, like the sergeant and the corporal, he has one stripe, two stripes. Because I made two hatches. <laughs> so I know I have the right to be called Haji. <laughs> so and so is called Haja. And so and so. They do it for that kind of business. 
What is it benefit? Yeah. It has not changed them. It's not. And a lot of Muslims get caught up in this and they will tell their children, young people like yourselves, if you decide you're going to go make Hajj, the parents will say, no, 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 no. It's not the time for Hajj. Why, mom? Why, dad? Because you still have a long life ahead. You know, what does that mean? Many more sins to do. <laughs> so if you're going to go make Hajj, you got to make sure that you've run out of steam. Right? You've used it all up. So your Hajj now just, you know, you're going there just to get that final blessing that wipes away all of your sin. Go make Hajj. That's why you see the death rate. There's a death rate there. Which cannot be stopped. Because people are walking up the the, the, the steps to catch the plane, they fall back, they die. They're walking off the plane in Jeddah, they fall down, they die. They're everywhere, they die, left and right. Why? Because only old people are making touch. <laughs> really? The vast majority, if you go to Hajj, you see all old people are on the verge of death. <laughs> but this is not what Hajj is supposed to be. It is not supposed to be that. Allah tells us that Hajj is an obligation on us, any of us who have the means. That is the Hajj, that's the true Hajj. You have the means, your family has the means to make that you make the Hajj, go make the Hajj. That's what's supposed to happen. It will change your life. If you go there, proper understanding, you make the sacrifices that are involved, it will change your life. It's a life-changing experience. Malcolm X, for example, that was the turning point for him. He had grown up in the Nation of Islam, defender, spokesman for the Black Muslims of America, Nation of Islam, which was really the Nation of Islam. When he went for Hajj, that opened up his eyes. He came to understand the inclusiveness of Islam. And it's for all human beings. Not restricted to one group or another. There's a turning point. And there are many others who have experienced similar things. So, fight with your parents. Do hard if you can. Don't delay it. <clears throat> there are also the six pillars of Iman and the two pillars of Ihsan, the remaining elements, the foundational principles of Islam. I won't go into because otherwise we'll be here until tomorrow morning. So I'm going to just stop here. You got the idea. How do we need to revisit, re-look at Islam? Knowing God and knowing the good that knowing God produces. Because knowing God is not just knowledge. Because knowledge by itself, as we believe, Satan had knowledge. Knowledge better than you have. But he didn't apply that knowledge. Adam had knowledge. 
Both of them disobeyed. Adam and Eve turned back in repentance to God. But Satan became arrogant. Though he knew of repentance. Because to think that Satan didn't know the words of repentance, only Adam knew it, that would be unfair. And God is just. Your Lord does not oppress or is unfair to anyone. So that knowledge by itself is not enough. That knowledge has to be translated into action. That's why when they define, the scholars when they sit and they define what is Islam and Iman. It is a belief which is in the heart. True belief. Which is stated on the tongue and is implemented by the limbs, by the body parts. That is true Islam. So, for the person who says, well, my Islam is in my heart, we say that's a part of it. But that's not Islam by itself. Unless we're in a circumstance where it's not possible to do any more, anything more than that. Or somebody says, it's just my statement. I say most. That's enough. Who are you to say I'm not Muslim? Because I don't pray, I don't on all, I fornicate, I do all these different things. I'm a Muslim. And in fact, if you try to say you're not a Muslim, then kill you. So, let us reflect on knowing God. First and foremost, ask ourselves, do we really know God? Have we really understood Tawheed? The unique oneness of God? Is it manifest in our lives? Are we living lives which should be the product of knowing God? Or are we living our own lives? Doing our own things? Picking from Islam what's convenient, what suits me, and what I don't like, or whatever I believe, and so on, so on, so it's, you know. Instead of it being Islam, it is your land. Your version. But there's no such thing. There's only Islam. So, I will stop here and give you an opportunity to <clears throat> raise questions, open for discussion, on the concept of knowing God and knowing what is good. From the Muslim perspective, obviously, because that's what I've presented, other perspective would be different, naturally. So, anybody would like to start? And we will follow the principle of asking a question and responding to the question, not getting into long debates. You ask a question, keep it as a question and not as a lecture. If you want to do a lecture, we can make arrangements for you. Have we got the mics out? On the female side, we have a mic here. Male side, mic, go ahead. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, my question is regarding the, the Hajj. 
uh, I would like to ask, uh, uh, is it uh, advisable or allowable to do as many hajj as possible? Because some people say that uh, you are allowed only to do one, one hajj in your lifetime. No, that's not true. That's not true. You can do as many as you want. You did a hajj, but the one that counts is the first hajj. If you are already uh, past puberty, then that is the hajj which counts. But you can still do further hajjis, and those hajjis, if you do better than what you did before, they can make up for some of the weaknesses which existed in the previous hajj that you did. So there's no limitation as to how many hajjis you can make. It's true, Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessing be upon him, made one hajj. But Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, Ali, they all make more. So were it only one, they wouldn't have done more than one. From the women's side. What happened to knowledge? Knowing God. That's what the lecture is about. Hold on. Okay, now. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Um, first of all, uh, thank you so much for coming over today and making this speech because um, I really enjoyed the content of this. Um, Second of all, you mentioned earlier that democracy is a flawed system, which I agree with completely. It tends to favor certain people over others. Um, you know, generally speaking, it favors uh, the white man over majority of other um, people. So Islam is a religion that obviously doesn't advocate these kinds of divisions. Everybody is equal, everybody has equal standing. But how do we address kind of the effects that democracy has had on Islam? Because you see these kinds of divisive beliefs present in some people. So how do we as a people address this division within ourselves if sometimes we aren't aware of it? Okay, first let me say that democracy, in some cases, is the best thing. For Muslims in India, for example, we have over 200 million Muslims in India. If the government became a radical Hindu government, and there is elements of that already anyway, but if it were openly and not democratic, it would be very harmful for Muslims. If it was a nationalist, racialist, or culturalist system, it would be harmful. So in that context, there I would say democracy is the best thing for India. Yeah, let it be democracy. A good thing. It protects the rights of people more. So it's not the automatic, simply the democracy, because there are even democratic elements within Islamic teachings, but with controls. The other aspect 
of the impact of democracy on Muslim countries. I would say, you know, that is the consequence of the era of colonialism, where systems were left behind, supposedly based on democratic principles, though most of those countries ended up as dictatorships, not following democratic principles at all. So we have a, a struggle as Muslims in the future to change our world and make it uh, in line ultimately with Sharia or Islamic law. And that responsibility, that effort, in my view, should be through peaceful means, through education, which can actually change people's way of thinking, not through suicide bombing and you know blowing this up and blowing that up and Boko Haram and ISIS and you know all this other stuff that's going on out there. No, that's not going to change ultimately. You know. It is true spreading the correct teachings that people will understand the way of Islam, the way of Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessings be upon him. Because if we are to think that the better way is the the way of the revolutionaries, the, the you know, the, the, what we call them, um, guerrilla warfare, where a few people go off in the bush, they get some arms, and they come back and they attack the society. The leaders, as they see them, with the idea that if we can just kill off these leaders and take hold of power, we can make this a better place. But what happens is that those people follow principles of by any means necessary. So they will do anything, any evil thing, if they feel it will get them closer to that goal. So what happens is that when they eventually grab power, they are worse than the people they are replacing. You use evil means, you will get evil ends. That's the Islamic view. Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessing be upon him, when he started promoting the teaching of Islam, people accepted Islam in Mecca, he could have gathered the strongest of the Quraysh who accepted Islam, Omar ibn al-Khattab, Hamza ibn Abi Talib, and so on and so forth, made a small band, then go and capture the rulers of Mecca, and kill them, decapitate, assassinate, finish them off, and take over and establish Islam. But he didn't do it. That way is... It, 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 it spreads violence in the society and you end up creating worse scenarios than you were trying, the one you were trying to correct. You try to make things better, but in fact you make things worse. So though you know, a lot of Muslims, they're very hyped up, you know, somebody shows you 10 pictures of what happened to the children in Gaza heads blown off, all these kind of things, and you're fired up. I gotta kill somebody. Somebody's gotta pay for this. 
This is emotionalism. Very dangerous. Because that leads you to this kind of feeling that any of them that I can catch, I will do the same. Kill them. Eye for an eye. Is that really eye for an eye? Is that what eye for an eye is in some law? Somebody rapes your mother, you can go rape his mother? Is that eye for an eye? It's nonsense. No. That's not how eye for an eye works. So you cannot use the harm which is done by some as justification for you now committing similar crimes against them. No. So you need to know, in spite of your, yes, emotionally, you're worked up, you've seen the suffering, you feel it in your heart, you want to do something, do something which is in keeping with the teaching of Islam. People in Gaza, they need finances to rebuild. They need, you know, technology. They need a variety of different things. If you aren't able, able to do it, do it. Give what you can. That's how to do it. Not go run down and try and catch an Israeli tourist and then <laughs> do your thing. No. This is not stuff. Um, I have a question that I think uh, it's very good interesting to today's topic and um, something for the students in, uh, of my age because uh, this is where you start thinking about what life is about and you know uh, these thoughts come to your mind and you start exploring with your own religion and you know look around for answers. So if uh, you know someone want a, a person like me and I want to truly learn Islam and not, uh, you know, inherited from what my parents told me about it. Um, how would I, what would you suggest? Uh, I mean, if, uh, the first step towards it would, what would it be? Like, you know, study the uh, Prophet's life, uh, Hadith, Quran. How would you, what, for someone who wants to get to know their religion for themselves, like you said today in today's lecture, how would, how would the person, should a person go about it? What would be the steps to go about it? Well, without, um, blowing my own trumpet, I would advise you to take the course free, which we have on the Islamic Online University, there's a course called the Foundations of Islamic Studies. It goes through, it's a lecture I gave, a series of lectures I gave in Ireland for Muslims who mostly were converts, but have been Muslims for some time going through the basic areas and providing for them the insight into the various disciplines of Islamic learning. Also, uh, we have in that free diploma, we have a lecture done by Dr. Yasser Qadi, which he did on the life of the Prophet This is also a very useful uh, course that you can take. So you build something learning from the life of the Prophet and also from understanding Aqidah, Fiqh, Tafsir, Tawheed, things that are related to it. And there are other courses there which you can go into as you progress. And it's up to you, it's your time, you know, whenever it's convenient for you. 
you can take that course. And it's not to say it's the only one. There are others, there are the universities on the internet, etc. offering. And that's something we have today which we didn't have yesterday. You know, 30 years ago there was no internet functioning that was accessible to people. You could just go on and get whatever information you need. Alhamdulillah, it's a blessing from God that we have that opportunity now. And really, we don't have any excuse not to have gained that knowledge. We go on the internet for Facebook and we use it for all kinds of other things. Maybe some haram things. At least take some time out and learn about religion. Because as we understand, as the Prophet informed us, when we leave this world, the first thing that we'll be asked about is man Who is what's your Lord? That's the first thing that we'll be questioned about. We'll be held responsible for knowing who was God. Woman side, there's a hand there in front of you. Hi, I have a question. Um, with regards to the role of females in Islamic society, what is your opinion on the unequal treatment of women in certain Islamic countries? We all know that women are as capable as men. They are equally competent, rational, and intelligent. So why the difference? And secondly... Let, let me deal with one first. Otherwise, I'm going to forget uh, one. It's a lead the into the first question. Uh, why don't you come back with the second one? All right. Because I remember the first Thank one. You. <clears throat> okay, the issue of inequalities which exist, people say, in the Muslim world. Is it in the Muslim world? Or is it everywhere? Is it in America? Is it in the UK? You know, how many people are in the parliament, women? How many are in the... Please. Every society in the world is plagued with this goodness. That women have not been given the opportunities that men have been given. This is not something unique to Muslim society. Muslim society is coming out of colonialism. The issue is, does Islam teach this inequality? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. People, human beings, human beings, males in most societies, dominate and they function according to their own subjective good. So, women, in the end, have suffered around the world in different times, different eras, etc. So it is a common phenom phenomenon, worldwide, as prevalent, though we may have laws and very carefully worded laws, etc., against the harassment of women and all these other kinds of things in the West. Because of course the West tends to put stuff up as the ideal, this is the model society top of the evolutionary you know, pyramid, right? We have arrived at the West, so therefore whatever is in the West must be the best. But reality is that women are 
abused. They're just as much, if maybe many times worse. Because when you put women, because of the issue of uh, women feeling that they have to prove that they're equal to men. So the woman now has to go into the army. As we had G.I. Joe, we must have G.I.J. Right? So, of course, G.I. Joe, his life is, you know, fun and army was a nice experience. But G.I. Jane, she gets it. She suffers. She is oppressed. She is raped. All kinds of things happen to her. All these writings now to the heads of, you know, the heads of the, the defense systems. So much. Was it really worth it? Just to have a G.I. Jane? Say no. In Islamic society, we would say no. It does not work. Can, can I finish? Can I finish, please? You're welcome. You're welcome to raise a point. The microphone will be given to you. This is the Islamic perspective. That we do not put our women, the women of our society, in places of danger, places of harm. If we're going to fight, the men go and do the fighting. Women protect the family. That's the norm. So this is our perspective. Of course, you know, different societies have different perspectives. But I'm just addressing the point of saying that why are Muslims oppressing their women as if they're the only people in the world in which women are oppressed? Please. No, behind you. Uh, we had a comment. Um, okay, so to continue my question, I was referring more to basic rights. I agree that women are being oppressed to various degrees in various countries and various religions, even in Hinduism and in my culture. But legally, women do have more rights in other societies than they do in Islamic society. I was referring more specifically to like the right to drive, the right to work. In some countries, they are not allowed to work unless they have the permission of a male uh, family member. They're not allowed to go to a hospital without uh, being accompanied by a male family member. And then, if um, why is there such a difference between different is the, the way different Islamic countries implement their rules? Uh, some countries are more free, some countries are less free, and even with time, such as in Iran, with the Islamic revolution, women's rights actually took a few steps back as time progressed, and even with, um, yeah, so that's my second question. Your question is, uh, why there is a variance in the treatment of women from one country to another? And even across time as well. Across time, okay. I would say, ask the same question in Western society, in Western uh, countries. Why is there a difference in the treatment of women in some countries and other countries? And across time, the same question can be asked. It's not something unique. Because when you're going to try to establish some point, you need to bring something which establishes its uniqueness establish any uniqueness and we're not asking for a comparison, we're asking you specifically about Islam, which is what this lecture is on. Well, I said that as far as Islam is concerned, uh, oppression of women is not a part of the teachings of Islam. Uh, is there an alternative argument that 
Would you like to mention the document rather than talk in big terms? I said that women cannot be raped by their husbands. Um, I don't think that's what I said. I think uh, this is something you, you have a you have a, something of that statement there. Great in marriage. Okay, I have a document before me. This is from. A course which I taught called Contemporary Issues. Um, could you give me a reference where I said women cannot be raped in marriage? Page? Seven, yeah. Can you read the statement? Okay, the statement that I have here. Statement. Because I mean, if you said that I said men, women cannot be raped by their husbands, I mean, there must be a clear statement here, a clear line where it says that. Can you read that for me? Rather than me reading through the whole document. But that's not saying that a woman cannot be raped by a husband. That he may not be charged with rape in Islamic law. Yeah. What, what, what does that mean? I did not say that a woman cannot be raped by her husband. He would not be charged with rape. That would not constitute rape in Islam. Yes. Well, you know, the bottom line is that um, probably that most people in the world today don't consider that to be rape also. If we go to um, China, China, with how many billion people? It is not classified as rape. We go to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Egypt, Ethiopia, Nigeria, these countries do not consider to be rape. And these are multi-millions of people. Yeah, let, let me finish this. The bottom line is that up until the 90s, 1990s, most Western countries did not consider the issue of marital rape. What are we talking about here? We're talking about 20 years ago, 24 years ago. Up until 24 years ago, 
marital rape was not considered as an act of rape. Can I finish, please? Can I finish? Can I finish speak, speaking, please? You know, we talked, we, we end over the topic here, right? The point is that in common law, enforced in North America and the British Commonwealth, marital rape was treated as an impossibility. Based on the traditional views of marriage and of male and female sexuality. That is North America and the rest of the world. So that indicates for us that there was a time, up until very recently, this was not considered. And the majority of people in terms of numbers in the world still do not consider it as such. Simply because some countries have decided to label this an act where a man forces himself on his wife, they have decided to label it as rape. That is the choice of that society. In Islamic law, if a man forces his wife, harms her in the process, harms her in the process, he is liable to punishment under physical abuse. It's not to say that he is free to do anything he wishes. Instead, if we look at the society, because this always happens, when you take something out of a society which has a different set of rules, and you try to put it in another society which has a different set of rules, then you have uh, obvious contradictions. Because in Islamic law, again, Islamic law states that it is the right of the husband that he be obeyed. It is the right of the woman that she be taken care of completely. So there is, there is a balance here. The husband has the right to be obeyed. The woman has the right to be taken care of. Now in Western law, the woman does not have a right to be taken care of. So to talk about that the, that the man has to be obeyed becomes irrelevant. It will seem oppressive. Why? Why should she have to obey him? Whereas in a society where it is an obligation on the man to take care of the woman, provide housing, clothing, all of her needs, she is not required to work. If she works, it's her own earning. If she wants to share some of it with her husband, she can do so. But it's not a requirement, because it is his primary requirement in marriage to provide for her. And if she doesn't provide for her, she has the right to have that marriage annulled. That is the son of law. The other side of it is that the man has the right to be obeyed. He has the right to call his wife to have relations with him. And she should obey him. But if she doesn't obey him, he doesn't have the right to break her arm, break her foot, tie her up and do anything he wants to her. No, he does not have that right. If he does so, he's committed a crime. A crime for which he will be punished. He will be punished according to the Sharia, Islam law. Because it's not permissible for a Muslim to harm another Muslim whether it's husband and wife, 
or people outside of the family, etc. So this is the context in which Islam does not, why it does not recognize uh, the uh, issue or the principle of marital rape. Marital abuse is punished, but we also know that this principle exists in Christian teachings. You can find also in the first Corinthians 7 verses 3 to 5, the wife who does not, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That is the law. That is the teaching. That was understand by the vast, understood by the vast majority of societies around the world. So, I don't think that you know we can make a case here of Islam being oppressive. Here, it is within a context. If somebody else wants to make some point, go ahead. Hi, I was just wondering, you were saying that if a man takes care of a woman, if a husband takes care of the woman, then it is um, the duty of the wife to obey the husband. It's yeah. the duty of the... The wife to obey the husband and the duty of the husband to take care of the wife. Yes. Right? But if a husband forces the woman to have sex with him, even if she doesn't want to, isn't that mental abuse? And how is that taking care of your wife? Well, the issue is, when we talk about mental abuse, this is a huge subject. You know, mental abuse can be all kinds of things. So let us just say, I would leave off the mental abuse part and just stick with physical abuse. Where physical abuse takes place, that is clear. Something measurable, something, you know, quantifiable. But when you talk about mental abuse, then you enter into a realm which will be relative. Because what you might consider to be mental abuse, somebody else might not consider to be mental abuse. So, If a woman feels she's mentally abused, she's mentally abused. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. That's why we have laws. You know, if I feel that I have been, you know, physically abused, I have been physically abused? No, not necessarily. I might have done something to somebody else and they hit me back or they hurt me back, but I, you know, yeah, something happened to me, but it's a result of something I did. So, you know, the area of simply saying, if a woman feels she's mentally abused, she is, in fact, mentally abused, I would say no. I don't agree with that. And you, you have the right to hold that opinion. You know, you just expressed it. And that's your opinion. And I'm expressing my opinion that I do not believe that if a, simply because a woman feels she's mentally abused, she's mentally abused. If you want to do a hands up here, those people who feel that if a woman feels she's mentally abused, it means in fact that she is mentally abused, please put up your hands. Well, you know, I think you lost. <laughs> there is a democracy. There is democracy in effect here. Yes. Anyway, listen, listen, please, please. Please, 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 hold on, please, 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 excuse me. No, no, we have to give all the chances to other people. Let us I'm very sorry, okay? You made this your point, you brought your issues, I've responded to them, well, put a vote to the people, see if you convinced them, see if they were agreed, and we see that the vast majority did not. So we just leave it at that, can we move on to something else now? Regarding death penalty, if let's say a mother kills her son, 
daughter or daughter and the father's death, who decides whether the death penalty should be applied? If a mother kills her son or daughter, then this is the decision of the court. The closer relatives don't come into play in this case. Somebody from outside of the family, then you have an issue of the family deciding. But within the family itself, a brother kills his sister. Who decides? No. In such cases, the Sharia applies itself automatically. Thank you, Dr. Bilal. The next question says, if someone is killed as a result of self-defense, what will happen to the person who had done the killing? So, someone is attacking the other person, and the person being attacked... Self-defense in Islamic law, you are innocent. You are not held as a murderer in that case, if you committed a, a fine, an offense which you, for which you would be killed. In defense of yourself, your life, your property, these issues, um, somebody dies, it's not what we call premeditated murder, it is intentional murder, it is in defense. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Bilal. The next question says, Assalamu alaikum. What are the moral principles of fasting other than empathy? How, okay, how should, I guess this word is cultures, how should cultures be changed by fasting regularly? But um, the moral principle of fasting is, of course, involving more than the issues of empathy. Empathy is a part of it. But what is happening in the fast, a person gives up something which is basically permissible for them. Halal. You give up food, give up drink, give up sexual relations. Right? So this is something basically halal. And the purpose behind it is in order to build up the human will to give up what is in fact haram or forbidden. So there is that training of the human will, strengthening the human will to give up what is harmful, what is evil, what is bad in the society. And of course, it is also and involves a remembrance of Allah. That one, because what is it that stops a person uh, from cheating in this matter? You can't tell whether a person is fasting just by looking at their face. Maybe they go into the bathroom and take a Snickers bar, take a bite, and they come back out, and they're looking like everybody else. So, it's what is it that stops you under those circumstances? I mean, that consciousness, awareness of a commitment or responsibility, this helps to build that consciousness. But again, as I said, it has to be with the proper approach, the proper reflection, proper understanding, and not merely following the ritual. Okay, thank you Dr. Bilal. Any more questions from the audience on both sides? Okay. 
Assalamualaikum doctor. Uh, first of all, I just have one question. And before asking a question, I would like to thank you very much for coming all the way here. Really, uh, that you was really good. And uh, my question is, if a non-Muslim, from a non-Muslim perspective, if a non-Muslim were to come up to you and ask three questions, what is Allah, what is Muhammad Wasallam, and what is Islam? You know, in your opinion, what would you say? That is my question. And uh, this one question. Yeah, one question. That's Sorry. The, that's the one question. Yeah, that was the one question. <laughs> okay, so I'll answer that one question. Yeah, all right. Okay. Say we can always come back to you. Uh, no, okay. this is not actually a question, but just uh, saying that to represent Islam, that you're a speaker from very far away, just try to be considerate to the non-Muslims here, and just that, and also like, I thank you so much just to say that. All right. I thought I was being considered to the non-Muslims, but of course, uh, what the actions of some people doesn't don't necessarily represent the actions of all. And um, consideration doesn't mean open uh, doors for uh, unfair or statements which uh, become long-winded arguments, etc., etc. It's enough. We share what you have, issues, and we deal with them. We have to draw lines. If we don't draw lines, then we have chaos. And that's what some of what we're experiencing here, where people wouldn't follow the normal principles, it becomes chaotic. Anyway, in terms of the three questions, I would say that um, who is Allah? He's the creator, sustainer, maintainer, of the universe. Who was Muhammad? Muhammad was the last of the prophets of God. May Allah's peace and blessings be on all of them. And what is Islam? Islam was the way of life that God prescribed for human beings. From the first human being in this world as a way for the last human being in this world. Thank you, Dr. Bilal. Any more questions on the other side? say is that you need to find out the root 
of the problem. You know, what is causing her to have a problem with the ritual? What is it about the ritual which has made it a problem for her? Because when you understand what's behind it, then you can advise her or take her to others uh, more knowledgeable than yourself who can advise her or whatever. But as long as you don't know what's behind it and you're only dealing with the surface, then it's very difficult to help her. So I was asking about uh, some people that actually they claim that like the acts of of, of such groups like ISIS that they actually have a backup or the or the supportive of Quran. So they use the ayah of the Lord Hayat is left to move and you may have to argue them. In the end of the ayah, ayah number one from Surah Baqarah. So they claim that the Quran actually supports the acts of of such movements, I say that. Read, read what came before it. See, this is a famous uh, methodology of those who seek to distort the message of Islam. You take something out of context and then you use it the way you want to understand it. Because if you read what came before it, yes, God is saying that in the case of war, in the case of war, where the enemy is trying to kill you, then yes, you have to kill them. This is the place. You go kill them. But it doesn't mean go kill everybody. You know, because they come from a particular country or a region or whatever, it means the lives of all those people now become permissible to you. No, those people who are fighting against you, they have taken up arms against you. In the battlefield, kill them where you find them. Because it's the same thing. There's another verse where it's mentioned after war, battle or fighting with um, idol worshippers, uh, disbelievers, a similar statement. And it is in the context of the battlefield. And some people, in order to distort the image of Islam, it says there, go. This is the Quran is saying, go kill any, any um, disbeliever that you find. You know, wherever you find them, you can go kill them. Of course not. This was not the teaching. What did the Prophet say in the implementation of these uh, laws when he saw innocent people had been killed in some of the battle? He said it shouldn't happen. It's not supposed to take place. You know, women and children, uh, people who are in their monasteries or whatever, you know, do not attack this. Don't burn. The fields don't destroy the crops. Don't he made a number of statements clarifying the, the principles of war. War is a part of human life. He laid down principles based on revelation. Many of those principles, you know, became enshrined in the Geneva Convention uh, many thousands, thousand plus years afterwards. Is there something from the women's side? Go ahead. Uh, 
Um, my question is regarding corruption in case nowadays. As you can clearly see, there are a lot of Muslim leaders who tend to kill in the name of Islam, steal in the name of Islam. Um, as well, the community and as us citizens, what action can you take, what Islamic action can you take to make this come to an end? You mentioned education earlier, but even if we try to, to change education, um, somehow the system would stop us from doing that either, you know, in a violent way or other ways. So, what can you do? Well, I mean, I think you're describing a scenario which may not actually exist. Because uh, the setting up of schools and the running of schools, in most societies you're allowed to do it. Of course, there's limitations. If you are preaching in the school, uh, go um, overthrow the government, etc., then you're going to run into problems. But if you are just educating the people, you know, educating the young people to understand what Islam is and their moral responsibility to society, you know, and, and, and to be morally upright, then it is enough that they graduate morally sound, people who could then not be corrupted, that you have made a difference. Because if the process of education is producing more and more corrupt people, people will cheat on their exams, on their assignments, and all these different types of things, then how will society ever change? You know, if you, um, say, are a product of that system where you have no scruples, you have no moral guidelines, no moral compass, then once you gain power, even though you might be talking about justice and freedom and everything, but once you gain power, you'll do the same thing that those before you did. Maybe in a different form, it's covered up, it's hidden, or whatever. So, the change that will be sustainable, in my view, is this change which comes through the re-education of the nation. That's why the motto of my university, Islamic Online University, is changing the nation through education. I just want to ask that, uh, it's now as you said, like there's a lot of Muslims that uh, uh, that have been practicing some some of the teachings, but uh, not really for following what really supposed to. But uh, they're just doing it for uh, some other reasons and these kind of things. Uh, so what I personally feel is like you know like you always have this uh, incentives uh, tied to. I mean, this like you know you have this uh, hell paradise, these kind of things. Like, uh, don't you think these kind of incentives have been tied to all these things? Uh, is one of the reasons why actually uh, they don't really, I mean, this uh, the lack of morality, the, the idea, the real idea of uh, the behind the teachings is is being uh, lost. Lost. Uh, yeah, it's been like that. I hope you understand. I believe that the real reason or the major reason is ignorance. You know, that is what causes the foundations, the original and correct teachings to be lost, it is through ignorance. Because when people know what is correct, then they have an option, you know? And more people will choose that better option. Because it is our nature to try to be good. It is human nature. You know, good is superior to bad. So, once the knowledge, education reaches, then people can change their lives and the direction. 
But when it's not there, it's just a ritual handed down, generation, family, culture, society, then it's not surprising that the moral element is lost. And focus tends to be on the ritual. On the women's side? Yes. I think it's from the women's side. There was nothing? Okay, we're going to last question, sir. Yeah. Um, hi. Um, okay, so I'm a practicing Sikh, and I just have a question for my Muslim brothers and sisters. Um, what is the concept of kafir? Is it literally meaning? Someone who is not in the, from the Islamic faith, or does it mean someone who doesn't believe in higher, in the Creator, or you know? Yeah. Okay, the concept of kafir, and of course it's sort of taken on and become sort of like a bad word amongst Muslims and, and non-Muslims. The concept of kafir is one who doesn't uh, believe in God as and or in accordance with standard revelation, what has been accepted as revelation to the prophets who are known prophets of the past, etc. So where a person doesn't believe in God in that way, then they're considered to be a disbeliever or a non-believer, one who doesn't believe in that tradition of belief. Because if we go just to believe in God, then Hindus who may also have idols, many other factors, etc., they also believe ultimately in one God. But they are prostrating before idols. So, uh, and other societies have other concepts of God. So, it's not simply whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God. That's between atheist and theist. One who believes, one who doesn't believe, or deist. Right? But, uh, it is, it was an, it's an issue of belief in God, belief in God as God revealed, or as we believe, obviously it's from our perspective, from the perspective of Muslims, as we believe God revealed Himself to the prophets, uh, of the past, Jesus, Moses, Abraham, and other prophets elsewhere, sharing the same message of who God is. So those who don't share that belief, then those people are considered to be disbelievers or non-believers. And the term in Arabic is kafir. Because actually the word in Arabic, it really just means actually one who covers up. Because according to Islamic belief, the person who disbelieves, or is a non-believer, is a person who when the truth comes to them, they will cover it up. They will not accept it and spread it. 
So this is what the original meaning of kafir is. It's actually used to refer to a farmer when he digs a hole, puts a seed, covers it up. That back is called kufur. Oh, thank you, Dr. Bilal.